0: Thank you so much for listening in tonight. Um, This is Vivian and Magina here, and you're definitely in the right place right now if you're interested in learning more about New York City's housing market and how it got to be where it is today. Injustices, crazy rent prices, and all. So the world we live in puts a price tag on, on, on almost every basic need that people require in order to live. Water, shelter, and food all have a price associated with them. But shelter, or housing in particular, has not only been commodified, it's become one of the biggest financial burdens on people. Recently, I saw an article by Curb titled, Nearly Half of New York City Households Are Rent Burdened. A huge portion of very low income, New Yorkers pay more than half their income in rent. Now, housing as a commodity is not necessarily new, so that's why today we want to explore what's changed in recent years to make the housing situation in America, and particularly in New York City, feel so much worse considering the number of people who can barely afford to pay their rent and how displacement and gentrification show no sign of slowing down. And to get to the bottom of this, we have the author of the book, Capital City, Gentrification and the Real Estate State, Sam Stein here. Hi, Sam. Welcome Hi. and thank you so much for being with us today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. How's everybody?
0: Awesome. Good. Doing well, doing well. So, um, so yeah, why don't we just jump right in. Um, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about how the housing markets in US cities like New York were historically shaped and how that has led to today's housing crisis?
1: Sure. Um, so in, in some ways, the housing crisis has been permanent um, in New York. For example, we have what we call a state of emergency, a housing emergency that we've had uh, since the 20s, I think, continuously. Um, and it's always been, you know, a divided phenomenon. Some people have had very comfortable housing. Um, but for poor and working people, there, there's basically been a, a housing crisis. Um, for as long as there's been cities that operate like New York um, that doesn't mean however that it's just this constant that doesn't change over time there's been a lot of dynamics that change it and you can see that uh, in the in the built environment of the city you can see old buildings and new buildings you can see rundown buildings and well-maintained buildings and all of this has to do not only with architectural trends not only with uh, the sort of different lifestyles that different kinds of residents would want but also with the political economy of housing as a commodity. And so the owners of housing have looked to uh, the state, to the city government especially, but also the state and federal government for all sorts of um, incentives that will make their business more profitable. And what their business is, is owning a monopoly on a piece of land, which we can think of you know, as, as a, a space within the city and they get to determine what happens on top of it and they get to reap the rewards that come from owning it and so the kinds of um, benefits that they've looked to to make this more profitable include a whole gamut of things from tax benefits that allow them to pay less and less over time um, into the city even though it's really public effort that makes their property as valuable because it's not owning space that is important it's owning space in relation to other things like transit systems electrical grids the entire economy right people want to live in new york because it's one of the biggest economies in the world not just because it's a nice place to live and so they pay less even though they take in more Uh, zoning changes that allow for different kinds of development patterns that are more and more profitable for landlords Um, banking regulations that let them um, actually make money off of having debt Whereas for working people, having debt means owing somebody money, for landlords having debt means having access to tremendous amounts of capital. And so they've always been influential in uh, shaping the system. And in the last 20, 30 years, especially, there's been a ton of money that has moved into real estate, which has made that sector even more politically powerful, which has meant that more and more of our politics is geared towards protecting the wealth of landowners at the expense of of residents.
0: Right, right. Can you explain a little bit more of that like relationship between like politics and real estate, like how they intermingle or interact?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at a lot of things in New York City politics, you find real estate as a central player. Uh, If you look at campaign donations, so this is actually beginning to change in the last few years. Real estate has been one of the biggest donors uh, and that buys a lot of influence. If you look even at um, something like the media, especially print newspapers, so this changes a little bit online, the real estate section was like a major financer of these newspapers and you know they'd, put out, they'd buy advertising, they'd buy classified ads, they'd do all sorts of things that would give revenue to the media which then is careful in how they report on the real estate industry. Um, but even more fundamentally than that, what the real estate industry really is is the private ownership of parts of the city. And so the public structures of government have to contend with the fact that most of what they do is regulate private activity. And this sector of capital uh, owns a tremendous percentage of what it is they try to govern and regulate. So just structurally, the real estate industry is um, a very hard thing to get around for politicians who wanna operate differently. Um, And as had a way of not certainly not controlling everything about politics, but having their will kind of built into all sorts of things, even things that don't look like real estate projects, like the way we approach environmental sustainability, or the way that we approach transportation, often often redounds to the benefit of at least some powerful sectors of real estate capital.
0: And what's the role of city planners in promoting development and how, you know, how that impacts the city and, like, specifically through gentrification?
1: Yeah, city planning is a really interesting profession. Um, The people who are city planners who usually work for the government, though they could also work for private contractors or nonprofits, Um, they're shaping the way that the city is gonna develop into the future. They're setting priorities, they're putting limits on uh, growth or encouraging growth in certain areas. And so everything that they do ends up having an impact positive or negative on the sales price of, of land in the city and the capacity for the people who own it to make more or less profit. So it's always political and it always relates to this private real estate sector, um, there have been times and places where city planners have really taken on the mantle of uh, making the city a much more public place and reducing the role of real estate, though that takes a lot of political muscle to to pull off. But there is far more times when, um, not because they wanted to or because they're evil or because they're in the pocket of real estate, um, but because they didn't see any other way out. They relied on planning, uh, more real estate's benefit to recapture public benefits. So uh, sometimes that means um, allowing the city to get more expensive because once the land values are higher, the property owners have to pay higher taxes. And then once those bigger taxes come in, uh, city planners, policymakers can do all sorts of wonderful things with that tax money. But it ends up being kind of a dog chasing its own tail because the way that they got that money was by making the city more expensive which means more money out of workers' pockets every month in rent. Uh, And eventually you get displacement, eviction, homelessness, all that terrible stuff. And so that trap has been um, a cycle that we've seen present for a long time but intensified as other forms of economic activity in New York uh, shrunk in proportion to real estate. And the biggest one is manufacturing. So there used to be a lot more manufacturing uh, plants, manufacturing jobs in New York City, um, the vast majority of which left or were pushed out first to the areas immediately surrounding New York, then to the south, sometimes then uh, across the border to other countries. And in the absence of a strong other sector, real estate became extremely powerful in capturing the imagination of planners as the way forward and as the definition for their success. So they look to rising property values to show that their programs are working, um, even when those programs might be creating affordable housing.
0: I know uh, Magina had some really great questions about affordable housing, and she's interested in that. So I'll turn things over to you, Magina, if you want. Thank
2: you. Thank you again, Sam, for such a elaborated uh, context when it comes to affordable housing. I. I mean, before we go into more in depth questions on affordable housing, I was wondering who per se, um, this defines affordability, you know? Like who decides, okay, this place is gonna be this much and who creates, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like who, who, who's the, who, who are the ones in charge that determines what affordability is?
1: It's a great question. So in general, um, the standard for what is or is not affordable in this country at this moment uh, is uh, does the housing cost more than 30% of the resident's income? Um, usually that means in rent, but it could also be in mortgage payments and maintenance costs if it's a, an ownership system. Um, we come to that number via HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Agency uh, at the federal level. And it's worth noting that HUD's original formulation was 25%. So we've seen inflation in what people are expected to be able to pay. And so in, in public housing developments in uh, with Section 8 vouchers, whether that's to the landlord or the tenant, um, the general rule is tenants pay 30% of their income. And as their income goes up, their rent goes up. And if they lose their job or take a lower paying job, their rent goes down. It's a different... Uh, factor in the private market but it's the same 30% calculation. So in the private market what we often do is look to what we call AMI, Area Median Income, and that is also set by the federal government through the Housing and Urban Development Agency. They look at every um, area in the country, every urban area, and they don't look just at the cities, they look at the larger metropolitan area. So the city and some of its surrounding suburbs. And they'll look to see what's the average uh, median income in that area. And then sometimes they also take into account um, wages and cost of living. And if it's an expensive area like New York is, they factor that in. And so what you end up with is a pretty inflated area median income compared to many of the neighborhoods where the affordable housing is proposed. So in a particular neighborhood, you might have a median family income of $40,000. Two income earners each earning 20,000, average is 40,000, some are higher, some are lower, but that's the average. But then if you expand it to the entire city, and then beyond that to the suburbs, and then if you add in extra because it's such an expensive place to live, you end up with a median income that could be double that, depending on the size of your family. And so there's a big mismatch between what we might think of as affordable in a particular neighborhood and what the government, from the federal government down to the city government, considers the affordable rate for the area. There's ways that they get around that. Um, Income, like projects can be targeted toward people who make a certain percentage of the area median income. So like uh, this project is for people who make 50% 50% of the area median income. Well, if the area median income was 80% and the true median income is 40, then you're actually hitting that middle at that point. But you have to sort of play that game in order to get there. If you actually go with what they say is the baseline, it's way too high.
2: Thank you so much for explaining that. So now we can move on to discussion about policies. Do you, What policies do you know of that are available to alleviate that financial burden? on people, especially in the urban community, that cannot afford to pay such
3: a high amount of money for housing? Mm -hmm.
1: I think the way that I would start to answer that question is there are a lot of programs, and yet there is a lot more need. So it's not that the federal government doesn't do affordable housing. It's not that the local government doesn't do it. They actually do quite a bit, and they spend quite a bit of money on it, and yet it's nowhere near the need and they spend quite a bit more money on unaffordable housing so the uh, the kind of baseline affordable housing program in in the United States the simplest is public housing it's housing that's owned by the government um, and it's managed through these uh, local authorities so in New York we have NYCHA New York City Housing Authority it gets much more complicated when you actually look into it but that's that's a kind of basic system. Then you have private housing that's subsidized by the government at various levels. So that could be um, what we call project-based section eight, where the landlord gets a subsidy, usually from the federal government, um, that allows them to charge less for their rent. Um, that could be the mitchell program in New York State, where again, developers got a certain amount of subsidy for 30 years, uh, a reduced mortgage that would allow their their buildings to be more affordable. Then you have tenant-based subsidies, Um, Section 8 vouchers that belong to an individual tenant and they can take them with them from place to place and wherever they go, they pay 30% of their income in rent and the government pays the difference between what the rent that you could expect for that apartment is and what they can afford. Then you've got uh, city programs of various sorts Everything from um, homeless shelters up to uh, homeless shelters, most of which are, are not publicly owned. They're mostly re- operated by nonprofits who are subsidized with city tax dollars. And you've got inclusionary housing, which is these private developments where a certain portion is market rate. They can charge whatever they want. And a certain part is pegged toward that area median income at various levels um, that program is not supposed to require any subsidies, but this is where we get into what I said about the the government spending a lot more on expensive housing. Um, We give tax breaks to the developers of those properties uh, without producing a whole lot of affordable housing. We give tax breaks to millions of homeowners in this country um, so that they get back all the money that they pay in mortgage interest, and a lot of that is very high-income people um, who get uh, millions of dollars, far more than uh, what the, the government spends on public housing. So um, I forget the numbers exactly right now, but it's something like 7% of the money we spend on housing actually goes to public housing. A whole lot more of it goes to private housing. Most of that is not uh, regulated in terms of price in any way. So That was a long answer, but... It's complicated, right? They set up these systems that are very complicated and it's very hard to change them because they involve so many levels of government, they involve so many jurisdictions, so many people get rich off of them in these sort of uh, technical ways. Um, The banks are invested in them, that it, it becomes far more difficult to do the simplest thing, which would be to create more public housing and to turn more existing housing into tenant-owned cooperatives than it is to do this enormously complex financial game where we give a tax break to one group so that they uh, charge less in rent to this other one and then this bank gets to collect fees for the next 30 years or something.
2: Yeah, so you would say the, the weaknesses the weaknesses and the strength of those policies is not that they don't exist, that they're, those policies do exist, but it doesn't really meet the needs of the people that really need them, Correct. That's correct. Thank you for explaining that. So, do you know of any practices, especially in New York City, housing market that allow for the transfer of capital from low-income regular people to landlords? And so, it's so c- fun, really.
1: city programs that that do regressive uh, redistribution of wealth from from workers to to landlords you're saying.
2: So, would that in, would that include LECs?
1: Limited equity cooperatives? Uh-huh. Uh, maybe you, sorry, can you repeat the question one more time?
2: Um, if there are any practices in the New York City housing market that allow for transfer of capital from low income, regular, from low income people to the landlords. So these are,
1: these are bad programs you're talking about that, that facilitate the transfers from, from workers to, to landlords. Yeah, so I I would not include limited equity co-ops in in that. I I see them as much more part of the the solution. I'm sorry, my dog is getting very excited that I'm talking right now. Uh, Okay, back to it. Um, So what are some examples of that kind of uh, program? Well, you've got the expiring of affordability. So a lot of the affordable housing programs that we have have like a ticking time bomb in So one that I didn't even mention uh, is the low income housing tax credit, which is the main way that the government um, promotes the construction of new affordable housing in this country. Those projects are either 15 or 30 year affordability, and then they can be renewed after that, but there's no guarantee that they will. And so that's public money going into the creation of affordable housing which can then become very expensive housing. We saw that also with the Mitchell-Lama housing program I mentioned earlier, which facilitated the creation of thousands of affordable housing units, both rental and co-op in New York. Uh, It also had a 30 year expiration period after which the owners could exit the system. And if they were co-op owners, they could pocket the difference between what they paid for it and what they could sell it for. If they were rentals, then um, whoever the landlord was got to profit from that as well. Similarly, project-based Section 8 programs have an expiration date. Um, So all these not permanently affordable housing programs are ways of using public money to develop affordable housing, but then often um, long-term residents can't stay in that housing, and they get sold off uh, and become extremely expensive housing not only gentrifying the neighborhood, but resulting in loss of housing for a great number of people. And a few people get very wealthy off of these programs. So that's one uh, thought I had about how that transfer can happen. Thank you. Thank you.
2: So, and as you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? And we're talking about policies. What? We're talking about policies um do you know uh in your own thoughts um how this current pandemic that we are in affect these policies that are put into place i mean i know i am aware like in new york city specifically like if somebody cannot pay their rent then they won't be evicted from their homes right now how does that how does this pandemic affect housing policies in new york city in the long term or in the short term you- right right
1: <laughs> Yes, yeah, so in the short term, um, you know, you can't have a system where people don't have wages and they're still expected to pay rents, especially New York City rents. And so, like you said, we put in place this eviction moratorium, which is really important. It's already been whittled away so that, uh, in theory, it now only covers people who can demonstrate that they have lost income because of COVID. That's a lot of people, but that's not everybody. Um, and then luckily the, the actually courts have not reopened, even though they could uh, because of pressure from the tenant movement and um, political intervention. So that's still in place. But if you haven't paid rent, you can't get evicted, but you're still expected to repay that rent over time. Um, and if wages are going down, not up, it's hard to see how that's gonna shake out to tenf- tenants long-term benefit. So that's one crisis we see. There's another kind of crisis um, which is happening behind the scenes, which is that a lot of landlords, um, like I said earlier, they they turn their debt into income. So they would take out these big mortgages and then they would refinance them when their properties were more valuable. Um, and then they could pull out a lot of equity from those buildings. So basically cash out, on their buildings and then collect rents to pay back the bank in the meantime. Um, There were two things that that model was premised on. One was that tenants would keep paying higher and higher rents. And second, that their property values would always go up because they're refinancing at a higher value or they're selling to somebody else who will pay more. Both of those things are now in question. So about 20% of New York uh, state, I think, tenants did not pay full rents last month Uh, so we don't have rising rent figures and then property values are beginning to drop um, a little bit anyway and so if the property values drop and the tenants aren't paying rent those landlords can't pay back their banks so they could go into foreclosure Uh, there are some very uh, powerful um, basically like private equity funds big pools of money that are looking to buy up uh, rental housing in New York when those landlords can no longer afford to maintain them. And so the state probably, in conjunction with the city and the federal government, need to intervene to make sure that that doesn't happen. And that instead, we have an opportunity to take these uh, rental buildings out from bad landlords who took out way too much debt on them and put them into the hands of the kinds of operators that wanna keep them affordable, that will take into consideration the tenant's actual ability to pay rather than just uh, you know, the demands to make more and more profit. And that could be nonprofits, that could be um, community land trusts and mutual housing associations, it could be limited equity co-ops, could be all sorts of things, anybody but big private equity firms and, and investment banks that wanna buy up this housing and charge people uh, money they can't afford in rent, so I think that's the uh, the big looming um, specter that we need to be thinking about and organizing around in order to preserve housing, even if we have to do all sorts of things in the meantime just to make the rent every month and just to you know survive in this very dangerous climate.
2: Yes, thank you. As you're talking, um, I was thinking about it too. Like those people that are unable to pay their rent at this time, whether Sort of given like a grace period right but then once everything starts getting better you're expected to pay back all of what you already owe so that is true like they the, the place might get might be bought by those you know private um banks and then that leads to more displacement so it's kind of like this ongoing cycle of of uh policies that just doesn't really work for low-income individuals and urban communities so we really do thank you for answering so many wonderful questions for us where this is our closing remark time
0: so i'm going to send it back to vivian thank you so much sam um that was awesome and magina those were excellent questions um thank you so much um i know you know you did mention that this housing crisis is very complex and it's there's so many layers and it's it's just there's so many moving parts to it um and you also mentioned some um some like alternative housing regimes like lec like lecs and clts and stuff like that as as alternatives but like if you if you could put this or if how like what do you think it's gonna take to kind of remedy this sort of situation in in new york city
1: Ultimately, you know, we, you started with uh, the fact that housing is, is this commodity, um, despite the fact that without it, you could very well lose your life. Ultimately, we're gonna have to decommodify housing if we want a different result than the kinds that we're, that we're used to seeing. Um, and often when we've got, gotten into these financial crises, we've uh, deepened the financialization of housing as the way out of it. So that's certainly what we saw after 2008. There was a crisis that was born uh, by predatory mortgage practices, and many of the same predatory bankers and investors who got us into that crisis ended up buying up the housing uh, that went into foreclosure as a result of it. And so we need to stop that mechanism from continuing. We can't let um, just more and more and more profit be derived out of housing it's no simple thing to say we're going to shift not just any commodity, but one of the most valuable commodities and also kind of traditional wealth building uh, tools in this country and many others and take it out of that system, right? People have been um, very, not just used to the idea of housing as a commodity, but reliant on it uh, as a commodity. We need to, if we're gonna decommodify housing, which is a big enough lift on its own, for that to work, we need um, other ways for people to have uh, economic stability that aren't reliant on their housing getting more and more expensive as their means of building wealth. If we just take that away from people, then uh, there's gonna be a whole lot of people who got rich off of this and a whole lot of other people who can't, but everyone can't get rich off of it. So ultimately we need a better system. So we need to figure that out. And then the other thing we need to figure out is part off of property tax revenue. New York City takes in, um, I think it's 13% of its budget comes from property taxes, even more if you add in uh, property transactions and, and other things like that. It's the single largest piece of the budget. And in many cities, it's actually quite a bit higher than that. And so if you decommodify housing, You need some other way to bring in revenue to have public schools and public transit and everything else that we rely on. We've built ourselves a trap by being reliant on high property values, both as a means of personal wealth and a means of um, public finance. And we need to find a better way because um, it's killing us basically to to keep doing this over and over again.
0: Yeah, for sure. And as you were saying that, I was just thinking about how Uh, We read something that said that, you know, also the construction industry is all the jobs and the work that comes with massive buildings and, and all of that is a way to stimulate the economy as well, you know, so like There has to be a better way to find jobs for people in the construction industry so that we don't have to fall or resort to building to try to get us out of a of a depression because I think it was like after World War Two or something there was like um that or yeah that construction they went into that or something like
1: that well that's right I mean traditionally we've we've built our way out of most of these crises but it's worth noting that um public housing was initially sold to to congress as a jobs bill you know we were going to hire a whole lot of construction workers and we'd put them uh, to work building public housing We could do that again rather than, you know, building yet another Hudson Yards or something like that. It's not a simple proposition, but we don't even have to get all the way out of using construction uh, as an economic development tool or at least as a a jobs program to get um, decommodified housing. We still need to build it.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much, Sam. We really appreciate you um, spending your Wednesday evening with us. And this was very insightful. Um, And we'll send you a copy of this, of course, after it's all put together. But we really appreciate it. Um, Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, no problem. Good luck in the class. Thank Thank you. We will be right
2: back installment of urban housing policies where more experts will share their thoughts on policies that influence low-income housing stay tuned interested in learning more about housing policies but do not know where to start If you're in the New York area and are interested in learning more about housing policies and how they're impacting urban neighborhoods, check out the New York City Council on their website at council.nyc.gov. Click on their land use tab for more information. Now back to our installment. Welcome back folks to our episode on urban housing policies. It's Magina and Vivian here. In our previous interview, we had Sam Stein share his thoughts on affordable housing policies, equity, and property regimes. Today we're joined by John Zaparo Jr., Chief of Staff on the New York City Council, who will also be sharing his thoughts. John, it is so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for being willing to be interviewed today. Thank, Thank you. So we are talking about urban housing policy and how the low-income communities cannot afford um, certain prices, right, to be able to pay their rent, especially in the middle of a pandemic that we have at the moment. So would you mind sharing, can you talk about the policies that currently exist, like um, inclusion inclusionary zoning that are meant to alleviate the burdens of finding affordable housing? What are your thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, so um, it's, it's actually pretty cool because when... Um, so I I started at the New York City Council back in 2008, working for then council member um, Fernando Cabrera, where I focused a lot on housing, organizing and establishing tenant associations and kind of going into dilapidated buildings and organizing the residents to take their landlords to court um, and things like that. And now I actually have the pleasure in 2016, I transitioned over to Councilmember Salamanca who happens to now be the land use chair for the city council. Um, and so he, he kind of, his committee kind of oversees um, the housing stock um, in New York City. But prior to him coming in, um, we literally had come in in a special election in February in 2016, um, where the MIH, the mandatory inclusionary housing and the zoning for quality assurance, um, had just come into, was just coming up to be legislated at the council. Um, So for those of you who don't know, right, in 2016, um, mandatory inclusionary housing and zoning for quality and affordability were two um, of the main initiatives that made up the Housing New York plan. um, where Mayor de Blasio had initially run for mayor, one of his plans through Housing New York was to create 300,000 affordable housing units across the city. Um, And so, you know, and that plan specifically was meant to address the low income communities um, and the middle class households, where you find people, you know, like myself and my wife who are, you know, 30 years old, young adults with children um, that have two great paying jobs, but yet can't find an affordable apartment in the communities that we were, we were raised in. Um, and those are some of the challenges that I was, I met we were met with when we first got married. But back to MIH and ZQA, that was, that was, that was part of the mayor's initiative um, to house 300 300- new yorkers and so um really when you break it down and i'll break it down really quickly mih was a zoning tool um that was developed by city planning and by HPD, um and which allowed developers to include affordable housing in areas that needed rezoning and what does that mean that means that if you took a particular area that was zoned for manufacturing or zoned for commercial or zoned for retail what 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 mih does is it allows you to change that zoning to build a portable housing, but in that MIH was a breakdown where a percentage of units had to be committed to the local community. Um, And so that allowed, um, you know, through zoning change to create housing. And what we have is a dense city, right? Our city is very dense. Um, There's very few plots of land, and I'll get into that later in some of the questions. Um, But, uh, you know, with that said, there were land that was unoccupied, that people had been sitting on for many years that could have been rezoned and used for affordable housing. So that's what MIH did. ZQA, what that did, what is what is it allowed? It allowed zoning resolutions to take place that would allow uh, buildings for affordable housing and senior buildings to be built taller, right? So in some cases, the city said, you know, we're going to rezone this particular property. And if you choose to do senior housing, which is a population of, of, of New Yorkers we need to serve, we'll allow you to build higher in that particular community and up zone where you weren't by law allowed to do before. And so that would also help bring the numbers up in terms of affordable housing units for seniors and for low-income individuals. Um, and so, you know, there and there were different incentives, right? If you if you built a building near a subway station, um, you know, there were they allowed you to build more because you didn't have to uh, agree to a particular amount of parking spaces, um, right? So if a building needed 200 parking spaces, if you were by the subway, the city allowed you to take. 150 of those away and use that towards units because you were by a transportation area. So the, the initiatives and the mechanisms were help, were meant to help create housing in dense areas, but also provide incentives to landlords to be able to build higher um, and add more apartments. And so, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot more to it, but those are the basics.
2: Um, uh, and you said this started in 2016?
3: Yeah, so this was legislated in 2016. In 2016, the New York City Council passed MIH and ZQA um, that ultimately would spur into what we have today, right? Which is the plant, which is what we use as sort of the base and the mechanism to how we create affordable housing in the city.
2: Thank you so much for that. And what is the process of creating affordable housing? Like, who is responsible to determine what? affordability
3: is so 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 housing it's, it's so crazy because i mean i'm still learning right but it's 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 like there's like a multi-layer when you think about it you know people tend to think that you know a new building that's coming up automatically means that it's affordable housing um but you know when you when you you got to look specifically when you look at some of these poster boards and what, what they're telling you, you gotta look, th- you know, depending on what it says. If it says Housing New York, most of these you'll find, those are affordable housing buildings. But there's so many programs that are made to cater to a certain, um, you know, different clientele of people across the city. But the cross the process to creating that, um, you know, again, in most cases, right, and, and I can just give you one, there's many because there, there are city funded programs that people do to create affordable housing. And then there's state funded programs, right? That you can go through what's called 421A you know, when you got some time, feel free to look that up and, and the process, you know, to get state dollars and create housing through 421A, which would depend on the zoning or a particular area where now uh, a piece of lot, a piece, uh, um, in some cases developers, right? If you're gonna build through MIH and ZQA, if you're gonna build affordable housing through the city, um, there's a requirement, but through the state through 421A, you can take an as of right property and you can build market rate right, which now market rate then spurs communities into gentrification. And I know that there's a conversation we'll get into about that as well. Um, but particularly the process for affordable housing in the city of New York is is really just to acquire some land. And if you acquire land um, and it's built for residential, then great, if it's not zoned for residential, that's when we have a conversation about a rezoning. And through that rezoning, process is where a particular, the local council member in that area has the ability to negotiate um, you know, and one of the things that I'm, you know, I'm proud of being able to do a lot, you know, in the South Bronx working there where there is the biggest um, amount of land in the Bronx, right? The biggest amount of open land right now to build is in the South Bronx, Um and you know I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to negotiate on some of these projects um where you have developers that come in and they say you know and i'll give you a breakdown 200 units and they'll say you know these 200 units and then we're talking about income bands, right what is affordable right and, and we can get into that too but i'll put it out there right what is affordable affordable afford, the affordability in new york city is all depend on the area media income and the area uh, the area median income is the, the, the by the federal government Um, And so they define, of course, the mechanisms towards that is, of course, just legislating, but also using data like from the census and finding out what is the area median income. But unfortunately, New York City is wrapped up with the area median income for upstate New York, Rockland County, Westchester County. And so in some cases, people like us in some of the communities where the average income is only 26 to $34,000, you know, the area median income is working against as a disadvantage because in some cases, is what the federal government is, defines as the AMI is not necessarily meeting the threshold of the people that live in the communities that these affordable housing units are coming into. Um, but the way you build it, you get a plot of land, right? You get a developer, the developer has to go to the city with a, with a plan. Um, you know, if it requires a rezoning in this case, then the city has to be able to also go to the local council member where that per, that local council member and the community board um, and, and the community at large will sort of you know, negotiate on what they feel is the best deal in terms of how many units you're bringing in and what is the income ban of people that will qualify for these affordable units and how, what is the percentage breakdown in terms of what the community sees, right? So through AMI, AIA, ZQA and MIH, you're able to get a 15% community set aside in the project automatically. So if you're building 200 units, then your eight, the the fifty percent set aside is that fifty percent of those units go to those residents that live directly in those com, in that community board. Um, of course, having to meet the income requirement and the credit you know check that most of our people fail. Right there's there's a whole system, a systematic approach to a lot of what what takes place and and there's a lot that we can dive into. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the developers have to go to the city. If it's city-owned land, if they want to rezone it, they got to go to the city. There's a process called Ulerp. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, but i'm sure you've heard of it and and if you're this far into your studies but ulerp is the land use review process that the city has to identifying you know where there's a process so you have to you have a certain amount of days to go through your community board and to propose your idea before the community board to rezone this land and the community board while advisory has has a has a stake in being able to talk negotiate and talk about what they want to see in the project and They negotiate that for their letter of support. Then after that process, it goes on to the borough president. The borough president makes another, again, he's advisory, but he makes a recommendation whether he's going to allow the application to move forward or not. Ultimately, the application goes through city planning. Most cases, if the city is proposing and working with the developer, the the plan in most cases will go through, being it that if the local stakeholders, and most importantly, the council member is... um, in favor of that. And then it goes before the vote at the city council. Once the zoning uh, gets changed, they're allowed to build and the city, you know, negotiates tax credits on, you know, because there has to be a makeup of where the affordability comes affordability comes in for some of these um, investors through bonds and bond cap and state taxes and whatnot. And I know that's a mouthful. I'm really sorry.
0: That's very insightful. (laughs) No, thank you.
2: i didn't know that there's so much that goes into housing you know because like all we all like on our side all we do is pay the rent right but we don't really know that
3: there is like we see a building you know we either see do we aff- can we qualify for it or we don't and if we don't we keep it moving but you know Donya carmen up the block is talking about how she applied for the building and she meets the income ban and she can't get into the building you know and it's just there's such a multi-layer process to a lot of it and um you know, I mean, look, I think that some of that needs to be reformed on the state level, on the city level. Um, but, yeah, housing is, is, is it's like an onion. You know, you just got to literally peel it back one there at a time
0: it sounds like it yeah and you know we were that was going to be kind of one of our next questions even though you kind of touched on it by saying that the area medium income level cannot always meet the requirements of the area but other you know are there any other sort of flaws or you know downsides that you see from these affordable housing policies that are currently in place
3: yeah um i mean i think that uh Look, I think that there, it's a two prong approach. I think that, you know, uh, what I've seen a lot of is on the community side. Um, I think that, you know, right, when you, when you, when you look at those sheets that kind of break down an affordable housing unit, right, and I'm happy to sh- and I can share some of those resources with you guys, you know, after the call, I'd be happy to send an email and just send some things your way. But you'll look and you'll see, you know, the breakdown of the unit, you know, the unit size, the family size, how much you have to make and what the rent is for that unit. Um, and automatically people register as that as long as they make that amount of money and have the family composition, that it kind of almost, which, of course, guarantees you an apartment because you live there and whatnot. And, and the problem with that is that in some of these cases, right, the, the issues with that is, and like anywhere, you can't, a lot of the people in the communities we live in struggle with, with being able to pass a credit check right? Because we, we weren't always taught financial literacy, and there was a lot, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, we didn't learn or growing up systematically the way we, we, we grew up. It just, it didn't, it didn't, we didn't think that taking out that credit card or, or paying that, you know, spending money on this particular issue will come to haunt us many years later. And so I find that going through that process kind of hurts us a lot, um, you know, uh, especially the local folks, right? The people that are part of that 50%. That come from those areas that should qualify for those new apartments. They're they're struggling with that in addition to being able to pay rent. Um, you know, um, but I think some of the some of the flaws in the system it, it also that exist are, are the fact that, you know, the AMI structure really, really makes it difficult, you know, for, for folks in our community because we're, we're really not making that kind of money. Um, but at the same time, we're not filling out our census right and so where we're, we're struggling and one thing we don't realize that that sometimes has a domino effect into how we live everyday life to voting in your local elections right I'll, I'll spare that for another conversation but i mean those are these are some of the things that are plaguing our communities and unfortunately um just uh add on to the overall un, you know uh, lack of success and us being able to move up in class as we as, as we should you know there should be no reason why someone like me who's lived in the Bronx all my life and has dedicated my whole adult life to public service, why I should have to leave the community that I've called home for so many years because I make too much money. Right. I think that, the, you know, policy needs to be shifted to make sure that we're maintaining, you know, the younger generation, people like me, like you guys, like my wife that grew up here, that went out, they got an education, they got a good job, and now they're reinvesting their money back into where they live. Instead, they're going away and they're saying, why am I going to pay a $2,000 rent for two bedrooms when I can pay a mortgage, you know, just shortly right outside the city? And so we're we're losing um you know that that we're losing those those incomes in our communities and you know it's really creating um a system of poverty right and 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 here's something that's unpopular but i firmly believe in mixed use right i think that you know for for too long we look at our communities with a poverty mentality where all we need to do is bring in affordable housing that's for the low low income communities right and and while we need that because we need to address some of the, the, the housing deficiencies in our communities. We need to be creating opportunities for people who, who the younger generation who's coming up, who's make, getting good paying jobs so that they can afford to live and reinvest back into their communities. If we don't do that, we'll never change the demographics of where we live. We'll always be poor, we'll always, we'll always be a community that relies on social services and that relies on government assistance. And so you know, when, we, when we start creating housing that's meant for everybody, Um, that's really when we're going to really start to see that change.
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned about the domino effect and how, you know, people are moving away to other places to get a a mortgage instead of like paying a rent. And, you know, it, it causes for people in maybe that area to have to leave their homes because suddenly maybe price rent, like, you know, rent prices go up and it's kind of like, you know, gentrification kind of. It's like the beginning stages of that. But you said something really interesting about the credit, which, you know, um, i think yeah that's like such a great point about building credit and how you know because housing is such a it's still such a way to build like wealth in in america and um financial literacy is so cheap it is yeah um so do you know of any sort of policies or any sort of like practices that maybe help shift capital from like you know, landlords to regular people because you know landlords obviously the more capital they have and stuff. But like if, if we were able to shift that sort of capital or money into the, you know, disperse it across
3: different people, do you know? Do you know of anything like that? I mean, you know, look, you have you, I, there is, but I, I got to be honest with you, there's just not enough. Um, there's not enough, and it doesn't it doesn't expand far and wide, right? I have yet to really find somewhere. Um, that says, and this, these are conversations that I'm having, having with friends of mine, right, or of, of of my age of my age range and and of my income bracket, right? Like we we look at these and we say, here we are, a couple of Bronx boys who grew up, we went to public school, we went to you know high school where we live, and now we're in government. You know, we made something of ourselves. we we're, we, we make decent money. How can we? you know, invest back by pooling, you know, and and these are the conversations we're having, right? Like pooling money together to figure out how can we create a capital to buy a piece of property that will help spur into hoping to build, you know, and and our idea is being able to do that and, and do it in the Bronx. Let's take properties here, let's build it back up and let's create, you know, whether you need to do it through a nonprofit or for, you know, a nonprofit organization where you're able to Kind of re-rehab build things and, and bring people back into their their buildings at a, at an affordable rate where you know I mean and you can do that through tax credits there's a bunch of ways to do it but um, to your question really that as far as the capital is concerned you know I, I, I to be quite frank I can't say that I know that there are many many places that you can go you know banks are 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 looking at you know quite frankly the the communities of color and because of the lack of financial literacy. The way we're coming in it, it it makes it a little bit difficult for us to kind of um, get ahead in that game, you know, especially for people who have been in housing for years and come from families that are building that, you know, I meet I'm meeting developers now that sons are taking over companies that their fathers have that were given to them from their grandfather. and, you know, there are really good property owners and landlords out there that are actually investing and, and, and part of the renaissance of the Bronx, you know, what we're doing, but there's not enough of us. There's not enough of people who, who live here, um, who have access to that capital. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there could be, there should be, right? We just need to talk, it all comes down to dollars and cents. And how do we create that pipeline to making sure that local communities, um, where there's an investment fund for, for people to be able to tap into, um, you know, through different streams of, of cash flow, but at the same time through bonds, through assets and through stock. You know, we need to be teaching our, our, our kids that because if not, you know, then we're going to continue to have people who don't live here come into our communities um, and, and, and tell us how we should live and, and build, you know, places that we can't live in.
2: Yeah, you mentioned
3: so many things that
2: I thought was very interesting that sort of fall in line to what I think um, as well, especially creating opportunities for people like us, you mentioned, not just making affordable housing for those that really cannot afford it, but also like us who are considered to make too much, right? Um, So I thought that was a very interesting point that you brought up because that is true me personally i think about it all the time like why am i paying this much cuz i've been to other states right I'm, where the same amount that i'm paying here for rent i could buy something
3: and it could be that the other day you know and, and rents and to uh, to buy a piece of property in my in my area now uh, an attached home you know under 3000 you know, under three bedrooms and probably something around three three 3,000 square feet is about a half a million dollars. But if I just go a little more south, you know, I can find a five-bedroom, 5,000 square foot with a backyard, you know, two-car garage for about $350,000. You know, I mean, the taxes in some cases are higher. I just think that, again, when you think New York State and New York City, we're just so dense. We're so dense. We're overpopulated, um, you know, and this is why... You know, look, among the many things that, Blas- that I'm not a fan of de Blasio about, I think that, you know, one of the things he kind of did right in some cases, you know, while MIH and ZQA was not perfect, I think that we were able to negotiate it to a place where um, it was putting our best foot forward uh, when we need, in, in, in a moment of crisis. You know, New York City was just coming out of a recession. People were now just getting jobs. And so now we needed to figure out how do we cater Um, To that population of people. So while it's not popular, it wasn't popular and it wasn't the best thing that we could have done. I think that um, it's one of the many successes I think that Blasio can take with him, um, you know, in regards to housing and, and, you know, 3K and pre K. I mean, those are about the main things I'll give him credit for. Everything else, we can talk about another time.
0: Speaking (laughs) of crisis, though, I mean, we're in a pandemic <laughs> the guy we interviewed last uh a few days ago he was like well we're in a pandemic he was he was kidding but yeah um we're speaking of crisis you know how do you think like in your opinion like how does the current pandemic have any sort of impact on the housing policies in New York City in the short term and in the long term
3: yeah you know especially, it's
0: <laughs> sorry and especially and the policy that
2: you mentioned. Right. Right. Like what are the challenges that you were seeing in reference to this pandemic?
3: So the good part the good part about it the good part about it is is uh, you know, in the in the state when when COVID happened in this within the state, New York pause, right? New York pause is, is what we were in when we were mandating non essential business to be closed and people to come home to stay home. Um, the, uh, if, if you were developers that were building affordable housing, you were deemed essential. And so, um, in some ways, I think the pandemic helped some affordable housing, um, whereas it relates to those that were already had a shovel in the ground, right? Um, but the effect that I um, have yet to be able to even digest, to be quite frank, um, is the affordable housing that was already in the pipeline. Um, and how, because of this pandemic, you know, let me tell you something the council just finished passing probably one of the most toughest budgets um that I have ever seen in my last 15 years of public service um and I've been on the council about 14 of those years and I- I've never seen a more terrible budget but a but a tight one right you know we had defunded defunding YPD. there was a lot of things that you know that that transpired with that budget but more in- importantly um you know I mean we talk about Defund NYPD, right? But that was only six billion of an eighty-six billion dollar budget, um, and 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 you know while that was the big roaring, you know, um, sound which was an important one, um, that was only six billion of the sixty-eight billion dollar budget. Well, eighty-six billion that we passed, um, and and how it's going to affect affordable housing is yet to be seen, right? Where where a lot of the remember a lot of these affordable housings you don't have developers that just come in with these tons of money right the way you make the way you make these units affordable are through the the city allowing tax breaks on property taxes water taxes and through through giving them abatements right for certain things and meeting certain requirements so that that at the end right there there there's a there's a the, the city gets what they need for affordable housing and the developer makes money, right? Because in some cases, developers are not, you know, at least not the ones making affordable housing, unless they're doing a lot of it, they're not making tons and tons of money like people would think, um, because a lot of that money doesn't come, they don't really start to see an investment until 15, 20 years later down the line um, in a lot of these pieces. And so my concern is how does that look now with the type of fiscal crisis that we're going into, right? After a pandemic, you know, when you think about it, the Bronx took 10 years to go from uh, 13.7% unemployment rate. It took 10 years for us to get from 137 to down to 3%. And that literally changed in a matter of three months. Um, and, and we literally reverted right back. And so, you know, millions of people are out of jobs. Um, you know, budgets, in, as far as the states are concerned, are... are are, are, are tied, And so I don't know where this leaves the bond cap and, and the funding to be able to afford uh, to uh, finance affordable housing projects moving forward um, in the city. I mean, I think we'll still figure and, and figure out a mechanism on how to identify which goes and which doesn't. But I don't know. You know, right now we're just sort of at a standstill um, as it relates to that. Nothing is going through the state. You know, there's just there's, it's yet to be seen. You know, and so I think that uh, while we're kind of we you know we flattened the curve as it relates to the numbers and and the amount of cases and deaths now is the rebuild you know now how do we pick up after covid not just on housing but on 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 every front you know on education and, and infrastructure and and i mean everything everyone everyone everywhere is going to take a hit you know um we could be going back into another you know uh financial crisis and, and into a recession you know um and so it's it's going to be interesting, right? But 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 keep in mind and pay attention to the people that have money, you know, um, because because this is also an opportunity for people like that to, to kind of come in and and start buying up land for people who no longer can afford to maintain it and to keep it. And you know, I'm interested just to see how how things are going to go. I mean, legislation remedies some of those things, but when you have as of right land, this is where. You're having a lot of developers who are building and they're building, you know, um, for market rate. And that's what spurs gentrification in communities. Can you
1: share you about
3: gentrification about- we have to look at what happened 10 years ago and how that started and how it's slowly developed to what's in our face today. It took a while to get here. It didn't just happen overnight. Thank
2: you. Can you share a little bit more
3: on your thoughts about gentrification? Um, so, uh my thoughts on gentrification. I mean, um, look, again, I, I think that um I mentioned it before, you know, I'm extremely supportive of mixed use um housing, right? And and what mixed use housing is is taking, you know, a, a, a it's it's taking it's taking people that that make below, you know, 30% of AMI. So that's someone, you know, I believe in in, in taking someone and a building and mixing it with people who make as less as, as low as twenty four thousand dollars a year, up to those who are making one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year, a year, right? Because you need the higher income bracket sometimes to main, maintain and maintain and and stable the affordability of the buildings, but you also want to retain those 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 incomes um, as it relates to gentrification. Again, you know, I think it's it's just um, it was a wave that we missed. You know, um, it, you know, we were we were just we were dealing with different things at that time, right? When we, like I said, when you look ten years ago, look back and say to yourself, what were you doing ten years ago, and what was your focus? Um, and we can look and see how we literally missed that wave It came right over us, and then, you know, now we're seeing we're seeing it. And so, um, I think that it's just incumbent on local leaders, um, you know, to make sure that that they're fighting for the best interests of the people that they serve, um, um, because ultimately. You know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to negotiate projects where, you know, folks just wanted to come in and say, well, we want to, we want to do 80% of the AMI to 150% of the AMI. And it's like, well, we're, we're, we're far apart here, you know, because you can't come into a low income community and, and not say to yourself, well, the people who live here should benefit off of something like this first. And so if we're not getting into the discussion on, on people like Doña Carmen, who, can, who, who, who should be able to afford an apartment in, in that, and, and someone like me, my income bracket, that should be able to afford a, uh, an apartment in there, then then we're, we're starting on two separate ends. Um, so, I mean, gentrification is like, the, there's but so much you can fight in in areas that have, as of right, land, you know, and that's a lot of things that, and that's a lot of education that people need to have because a lot of people just think that gentrification comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't. It, 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 it literally has, um, it's, it's a layer. Um, approach that's that's taking place over years and so um I mean you know we're seeing it here in the Bronx we're seeing it in the in the South Bronx um you know when you look at areas like Mott Haven um and and Port Morris you know um but I think that you know look I've been fortunate enough again and I can't emphasize this and be so proud of it at the same time is to say that like I I've been able to work with someone who's a land use chair um, that believes in making sure that, that a community preference is in place and every piece of, you know, there's not one project that I've been a part of in the last five years that, I've, that we've ever approved um, that was market rate, not one apartment. Um, and in somewhere like Port Morris, where units are going for, at, the, at a studio, uh, $1,800, um, I'm actually proud to say that I negotiated on a project that would bring affordable housing to that area Um, That will see people that make um, anywhere near and and far above $180,000, but will also include 15% of those units to formerly homeless families. Um, you know, and, and so that, you know, we're able to show that, yes, you can, you can put affordable housing in a gentrified community that takes high-income band people, um, folks, but you're also going to take folks that coming out of a shelter system because they deserve that same quality of housing as a person that makes $185,000 right upstairs. Um, and so those are some of the things that we've been proud of. And so, again, you know, you use MIH and ZQA to the best that you can, um you know and that's why it's important for people to get involved you know the community board has a lot of influence over that you know and so yeah
2: thank you so much john um this was so
3: i hope i didn't uh i mean i know i i I condense my (laughs) responses a lot but there's just so much you know as a that as it relates to housing and um you know people just i don't pay attention because this is the reason why we're not Taking advantage of it because we just don't know we're not educated on it. They're not teaching this in the school, you know. Um, so I'm already, you know, teaching my my four year old on, on getting property and, and, and houses and owning, you know, and you don't take someone else's toy and give it back as you, you buy your own, you know, and you make it yours and you just use little things like that to spare financial literacy. Is it better for you to have this to save it for something better later? You know, um, so much more spiel guys. It's really great. I love what
0: you said about mixed use um, buildings and how um, that's such an interesting part because I always think like what if what if this affordable housing wasn't going to the next gentrified place? You know, what if instead of gentrifying Williamsburg or LIC, you know, in the middle of of the you know, the west side or you know, in the east village. They just, you know, came out with a bunch of affordable housing projects. How would how would the East Village take that, you know? And how would like what would instead of you know Carmen down the street, like what would I don't know Becky next door think if if all of a sudden now she's having to share her building with uh, people who were recently homeless or things like that. So, but I I, I think that's that's wonderful. I, I completely agree.
3: And the good thing and look and the important thing is and, and I'll finish on this, you know. One of the one of the things I'm most proudest of, um, as it relates to, you know, shaping um, housing policy, is um, I was, you know, last year we were able to pass what we called the um, 15% homeless set aside, and I can send you guys some articles on it. Um, And uh, I I worked on drafting some legislation and policy um, that we knew was pretty bold in the beginning, but we were thinking bold. Because the mayor had a plan to address housing in New York City. He wanted to build 300,000 units, but made no commitment to um, making sure that we were homing, ho- housing the homeless. You know, and, and, and I'll just give you, I'll leave you with a, with a pretty um, interesting fact that most people don't know. But last night, 63,000 people slept in a homeless bed. 63,000 people in New York City slept in a homeless bed, and out of those 60, 63,000 people, 23,000 were school-aged children. Um, and, and these are people from, you know, those who don't work and have no job to people who have a master's degree and just got priced out in a particular community, right? You know, maybe lost their job and from one paycheck to the next found themselves homeless, um, and when we when we looked at you know in 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 the city when when you guys right in the negotiating process and this can go towards a question of how it's built in the process where you're building affordable housing you get to negotiate what they call the set asides right outside of the, the the percentage on the community preference you get to negotiate right developers would want to take. Um, homeless families, because it increased the amount of money they would get for the project, so the city would incentivize landlords to take homeless families and they would pro- they would provide a base you know sort of like a base rent for them right helping to offspring some of the rent through a tax credit while providing services right so not just taking a homeless family that you know coming out and just leaving them to go to a new apartment but linking them to a nonprofit or community-based organization that can help make sure that they don't just get housing but that they stay in housing and they don't become homeless again um, and so one of the things that we said to ourselves was you know when we were looking at it you know we were saying there's, 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 all, there's all these homeless families that we have across the city and all elected officials wanna do is point the finger um, at the mayor and say, well, the mayor's not doing anything to address housing yet council members have some power and legislative power to do it and they weren't doing anything about it. So we said, you know what, we're gonna create some policy that, um, and, and the policy is pretty straightforward. And 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 if any developer in the city of New York, any developer, any landlord receives so much as a dollar, in tax breaks or in city subsidies or in capital funding if the city gives any landlord or any developer so much as a dollar they have to automatically incur a 15 percent homeless set aside in their projects so that means every single project that will move forward from here on in in new york city if you're receiving any type of funding from the city you automatically have to include 15% of whatever your total units are for homeless families that are ready for independent living. Um, And so while it doesn't fix homelessness, it actually, it it makes a dent and it's the start of a conversation. It's the start of addressing, you know, um, the homelessness problem in the city. And so that's one of the biggest things that we're proud of um, because literally, you know, it, it couldn't have come better that December of 2019, Um, we were able to pass that legislation. And there were people who, as of Christmas, were able to get inside some affordable housing units um, from a law that was just passed shortly, just a couple of weeks before. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the exciting things that we were able to do in using legislation and policy to change and make housing more fair um, for people. I'm happy to have been able to contribute and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You know, I'll send some articles your way and a few of the, uh, jargon, and hopefully you, know, you guys can this.
2: Thank you so much, John. I think you even incorporated any the closing remarks that we had concerning you know, your own thoughts about how to remedy um, the injustices and, and, uh, and housing, and especially for
3: the lower- And to create opportunities for everybody. Um, and, and we have to use that by all, by all ways, through legislation, through policy, um, through advocacy, we need to do it, you know, um, and how we pass a budget, you know, it's, it's not enough to just talk about it, you gotta put the money behind it. And so, you know, um, we as a people need to make sure that we're demanding more money for fair housing. Um, and, and, you know, look up community land trust. If you haven't heard about it yet, that's something that's coming up, community land trust, um, and, it's, and it's giving pretty much these pieces of parcels of land, giving that land back to the community by way of a community-based organization um, and, and building housing and, and creating a sort of a sustainable affordability through it for people that live in the community. So um, that's something that's coming through the pipeline that we hope you know can benefit people in the long run
2: awesome thank
0: you so much john do you have any last thoughts well thank you so much that was amazing just thank you for meeting with us and all of your comments it was very insightful and helpful and we just are
3: greatly appreciative of this No, i'm glad i'm able to help
2: thank you for listening and we will see you next time